It's 6 p.m. on a warm Thursday in June. You come out from the rush of Vauxhall Tube Station. The MI6 headquarters are behind you and red buses circle the roundabout. Commuters rush into the train station while locals make their way to the Sainsbury's. Avoid the crowds and go right to the underpass below the railway tracks. It's dark encrusted with bird droppings and the neon light fizz. As you exit the underpass, you notice on your right the slender new skyscrapers that have been emerging from Vauxhall recently. Ignore them, cross the road and head for Langley Lane. As you enter the street, the roar of traffic begins to deaden. It's so quiet you can hear your footsteps. People, cars and trains have vanished. Trees erupt from the tarmac on both sides of the road and a mishmash of exotic plants tumble from the repurposed dustbins. The smell of pink jasmine fills the air as you begin to enter a grove of palms, cypress, banana plants and tamarisks bordering the empty road. A few more steps and that's it. You reach the heart of the square, a terrace of Victorian houses, a charming Italian cafe, and a small community garden. The atmosphere is calm and peaceful. Welcome to Bonington Square, an ordinary London neighbourhood transformed into a small urban oasis by the hard work of a community of squatters who settled there in the 1980s. At one point, there were 300 all squatting in the empty houses of the square. Over time, they had a massive influence on the neighborhood. How did this community develop? Who were these people? And what remains now? In today's episode, we speak to several past and current residents to try and understand the magic of Bonington Square. There were so many interesting stories that we had to split this episode in two parts. In the first part, we'll speak to Todd, James and Alistair, three squatters who lived in Bonington Square in the early 80s. The, the electricity was on and the phone was on. Uh, but no plumbing, no toilet, no bath, no sink. So all the plumbing had been ripped out. We started getting firewood and started using the fireplaces to keep warm. But I mean, it was incredibly challenging. It was really cold. It was kind of anarchic at every level, you know, f- from the way people lived their lives to how architectural space was treated to the kind of activities that were happening. You know, we, we, we could you know we could we could make a shop, we could make a cafe, we could make a nightclub. You know, we felt you know it was a bit it was like sort of playing really in in a way compared to you know grown up life as most people know. Open your eyes. Open your ears. This is eyes and ears. I am your host, Nicolas Bouchon, and this is City Bites from Eisenhears, a podcast revealing the untold stories of the city's most interesting buildings and neighborhoods. Part 1 Squatting Bonington Square. 
Before speaking to the people who made Bonington Square such a fascinating place, it is useful to talk about its unique features and what it used to be. Bonington Square is tucked away in Lambeth, just west of the Oval Cricket Ground and east of the Vauxhall train station. It is a peaceful area, only metres away from Harleyford Road and South Lambeth Road, which are two of the busiest traffic arteries in Vauxhall. The neighbourhood is formed by two connected square, Vauxhall Grove and Bonington Square. Bonington Square is kind of a cul-de-sac. For cars, the only way in is through Vauxhall Grove and the only way out is via Langley Lane. This sense of enclosure gives it a quiet and intimate character. A map of the area from 1871 shows that Vauxhall Grove used to be a lane lined with cottages on both sides. And Bonington Square was a nursery garden with a detached house called the Vinery. This early mid-19th century villa, uh, which is now called Vine Lodge, remains today at the corner of Bonington Square and Langley Lane. In 1881, terraces of three-storey Victorian houses were built on Bonington Square and Vauxhall Grove to house hundreds of builders who were working on the railway tracks. On some of the houses' door arches, vine leaves and grapes were cast as a nod to the former growing of grapes, which were used um, to make the vine vinegar in the nursery garden. You can still see these fine details today. In the 1970s, the Greater London Council and the Inner London Education Authority compulsorily bought 90 houses on Bonington Square and Vauxhall Grove. The idea then was to demolish all these houses to build a playing field to extend uh, the nearby school of Langley Lane. These plans accelerated in 1980, and all the tenants of the houses were relocated in a nearby block of flats. So in the space of just a few months, nearly 90 properties became completely empty, and the first squatters arrived. To better understand the history of the square, I spoke to Todd, James and Alistair, three squatters who lived in Bonington Square in the early 80s. Robert Todd, who goes by Todd, was amongst the first people to squat in the square. He had just moved from Essex to study architecture in London, and he had been squatting just down the road in Stockwell. Basically, I was just looking all over the place, um, you know, going out every morning on my bike and sort of hunting around for properties that were empty and I think I happened on um, Bonington Square and at the, at the time it seemed that people were very you know people were really worried about the place getting squatted because it had been squatted before and I think it you know it all ended pretty badly. The houses that had been squatted before were pretty much sort of bricked up and smashed up so they weren't really feasible but there was there was this one house that looked fairly okay and so uh, we, we tried to move in there but the people sort of came rushing out and said, no, no, you can't go in there. Sort of called the police and basically stopped us moving in there. But um, after that, we got talking to the woman who ran the shop there and um, she tipped us off that some people were being moved out of a house in a few days' time, which basically meant there was a house that was in reasonably good condition. And um, so we, we just moved in pretty much straight after they left. But just before Todd and his friends could settle in, the police came to the property. 
basically we did we got arrested um i think on the basis that there was a i don't think we'd actually broken the window but there was a broken window or something so they they were able to say that we'd broken in so uh there was a bit of drama about that and uh, i spent the night in the police in the cells in clapham but basically nothing i think you know the police imagined that if they stopped us moving in then the council would come along and secure the building but actually they didn't do anything so we just moved back in again james fraser arrived shortly after todd and he still lives there today i guess i'm probably one of the oldest going back to november 1980 we were the second house that um, was squatted. So yeah, it's been a huge part of my life and a major opportunity for me, which I couldn't believe at first. He was about 25 years old at the time. He had just arrived to London from his subtropical home in New Zealand, and he was looking for a place to live. I was staying in a bed set, as you do, with friends and tooting back. And I just had a phone call from uh, a good friend of my brother's whom I'd never met. She was a, a New Zealander, a music journalist. Her name was Julia, and she had heard about squats in Brixton, Stockwell and Oval at the time. And so she asked James on the phone. Would you like to come meet us the next day? We're going to break into a house and we need help to get in. And if we're in, we can stay there for six months, probably. It is hard to imagine, but London was a very different place at the time. There were a lot of empty houses, especially in South London, in Kennington, in Stockwell and Brixton. These houses, council blocks, factories, had been abandoned and left for dereliction for one reason or another. Young people like James and Todd started opening up and claiming these properties. The day after that phone call, James went to meet Julia. So I, I turned up and there were five of us. There was one couple who knew each other, but the rest, we didn't know each other and I'd never met any of them before. The house they chose was Vine Lodge, a detached house with a small garden, the oldest property in the square. That was a pretty crisp sort of November day and we sort of broke in and uh, it was in the dead of night. We didn't get caught, it was so easy. As long as squatters didn't get caught while breaking in, they were not technically breaking the law and they had squatter rights. They were able to stay in the property until an official process of eviction was organised by the authorities. Squatters never knew how long they were going to be able to stay in one place. It was very insecure. Breaking in was often the easy part. Most of the time these houses required a lot of work. And Vine Lodge was no exception. This was a structurally sound house. It had fireplaces and the, the electricity was on and the phone was on. Uh, but no plumbing, no toilet, no bath, no sinks. All the plumbing had been ripped out. We did have water, but it was out the side, out the back. It had to hang out the the bathroom window to a cold tap that was the only water supply you know so uh, and I'd go off to friends and oh, can I just use your shower when I'm here <laughs> you know, so, um, and, and I'd, I'd had a I arrived with a you know a backpack with a sleeping bag so I found a mattress or somehow and, and then we started getting firewood and started using the fireplaces to keep warm but I mean it was incredibly challenging it was really cold and you know the 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 roof leaked a wee bit. The bathroom was huge and cavernous. These first few months were definitely in contrast to the subtropical country he had left just a few months ago. James and his new friends started opening up other houses to try and find some materials to do the house up. They could also use a network of squatters in the area 
where people all had different skills and were willing to help. They managed to really improve the state of the house, and he stayed there for over six months. He then found a smaller flat in the square, in a much better condition, after talking to one of the neighbours, and he decided to move there, while his housemates remained in the house. Vine Lodge carried on, and funnily enough, Vine Lodge remained a squat, I think right up until the early 2000s, so it was might have been the last house out of all of them that that was a, it was a squat. We did some research and James is right. Vine Lodge was the last house to be squatted on Bonington Square and it was occupied until 2005. In the second part of this podcast, we'll speak to the last quarter of Bonington Square. In the early 1980s, the square looked very different from today. This is James again. When we appeared, uh, I'd say, I guess, quarter were inhabited. But the quarter store was still going. It would fill up with cars during the day because people um, would come and park there and just you know, pop on the tube because there was no parking restrictions then. They just parked everywhere. Just, and then at night, it just it, empty. You know, it's sort of like a sort of, you know, film set. Todd also remembers very vividly how the place felt like back then. There were probably a dozen houses that had been empty for quite a while and that had been, you know, windows bricked up and so on. But there were still a lot of houses that had people living in them. But the general feeling of the square was, you know, it was really quite kind of really run down and dark and quite depressing and I think for us because we were feeling a bit you know on the defensive sort of thing um you know we didn't feel as if we were very welcome so the whole thing was a bit scary and you know because it's a kind of dead end a square so you feel a bit kind of trapped there first impressions or those early days of of Bonington Square it was quite a bleak place I think you know slightly dark (laughs) and you know a bit derelict and the house that I lived in for five years although it was spacious and you know it was quite dilapidated I guess. This is Alistair Oldham he now teaches filmmaking at the University of Bristol. Alistair squatted in Bonington Square for over five years and he produced a beautiful documentary depicting the place and interviewing the squatters who were part of the community, his community. You can watch the documentary for free on Vimeo. The link is in the description of this episode. Alistair arrived a little later than Todd and James. He was just 21 years old. I was probably one of the second or third wave I just graduated from York University and was kind of, you know, somewhere between a bit lost and and up for an adventure. Alistair remembers his first impressions. When I was first shown the place, I was like, oh, wow, is am I seriously going to do this? I mean, it was kind of dark and gloomy. And there was a, one room was full of theatre props and there was a giant multicoloured teapot uh, wedged into the ceiling of the hallway um, 
and I did think, oh my God, what am I doing? I sort of renovated or decorated it. I, I built a photography darkroom at the back and had a little garden and it was actually really comfortable and I kind of painted it all up. Although there was no rent, Squatters did a lot of work to renovate these houses and transform them into livable spaces. Freed from the constraints of property ownerships and fixed rules, they could really experiment. You know, one of the great things for me about living in Bonington Square is it was like a an early renovation project and you were, you know, there was a there was a physical space that you could have a go at ripping a wall down or or kind of, you know, moving the the bath from one floor to the other or building your own dark room. So you really learn some practical skills on the job. At the time, they could also benefit from local council support. James remembers this unique opportunity. I was astounded at what was available here if you had people who knew what buttons to push. We showed some initiative. From the get-go, you could get short-life housing um, grants. In other words, you could get grants just to do the house up for a few years. As more squatters were settling in, they would talk to their friends who would also move to the square later on, creating rapidly a small community. This is Todd again. Pretty quickly, people that we knew sort of realized that there were places there that they could squat. There were people waiting and when, when they heard that there was a place empty, somebody would be ready to move in. So it started to feel as if there was a bit of a, you know, we had a bit of a gang, so it, was, it felt a bit more comfortable. And so word of mouth slowly built a community of like-minded individuals in Bunnington Square. A community started to develop, which I suppose is quite, a, you know, quite an unusual thing in, in a city for you to be able to select the people that you live with you know and to or you know kind of self-select yourself a community generally you just move into a house and whoever your neighbors are you know that's who your neighbors are pretty quickly the square filled up and there were very few empty houses left todd and his friends had many new friendly neighbors among them was alistair who tried to estimate the size of this community when making his documentary there are at least 80 houses on Bonnington Square and there are, there are at least 16 on Vauxhall Grove and they are mainly three to four floors, storey houses. So my estimate when I was researching the film that at any one time there would be probably at least 400 people living there and obviously there was quite a lot of through flow of different people living there. So over the years, goodness knows. But any one time, three to 400 people, all squatting. The community was sizable, but also very diverse. Alistair recalls the kind of people who were living there at the time. Well, there was a bunch of kind of, you know, I would say kind of anarchists from the UK. There was a whole load of New Zealanders. Uh, There were Australians, there were people from Brazil, there were... There were people who were very political, you know, there were people who were pretty clearly addicts. There were quite a few European people. There were quite a few people who were definitely artists. There were some filmmakers, there were photographers, there were builders, there were gardeners. One of the things that I really loved about living there and the the kind of, you know, the influence on my life is it was this kind of convergence of people who 
had quite a political outlook, but were very creative with it. And and people who had a real interest in kind of, you know, kind of the politics of the everyday, as in how you lead your life and how you almost design your life. And you, you don't have to follow some of the kind of prescribed pathways for you. And I, you know, I, I really like that creative way of living, I guess. Squatters often had a common ethos, but there were various subcultures and a diversity of thoughts and opinions, as you would expect from a community of about 400 people. This is Todd again. There was a sort of spectrum, you know, of people from kind of extreme punks who didn't want to, you know, have anything to do with anything or conform to anything. And then there were, at the other end, there were the people who quite wanted to be respectable and have a good relationship with the council and and all, all sorts of you know people with different attitudes and and then, you know all those kind of different youth culture things that existed that mix could be challenging at times but the desire to remain in the square bonded people together it was quite an interesting thing for people to not be only in their own subculture you know but but to find themselves having to sort of relate to people in who, who were doing different things and had different different ideas because to some extent you know we had to deal with each other because that was the only way that we could stay there and and also because we were in a sort of illegal situation you know we couldn't rely on the authorities to sort things out for us you know you know there were quite a few problems with drugs for instance you know, houses that were used for dealing and sort of things would get a bit out of hand. And obviously you couldn't go to the police and get them to sort it out. So, you know, we had to sort things out amongst ourselves, basically. From speaking to the people who lived there at the time, something became very clear to me. From policing to plumbing and renovation, nothing was delegated in Bonington Square. This do-it-yourself attitude was at the very core of the squatting ethos and Todd, James and Alistair and all the others had to learn complete self-reliance. They had a lot of freedom to experiment with this square, which had been left abandoned, but nobody did anything for them and they had to figure out how to make things work for the community. Squatting was typically very insecure. Squatters knew that when they settled in a place, they could be staying for two weeks or two months. And it was always the threat of being evicted. So investing time and effort into improving these homes could be challenging or just not worth it. But soon enough, the squatters of Bonington Square realized that they would be able to stay for longer. The houses on Bonington Square were owned by the Greater London Council, the GLC, who was actively evicting people until 1981. In 1981, Labour was voted in and evictions became less of a priority. James Fraser remembers the political context at the time. We, we were lucky because we were in the north part of Lambeth, which at the time was out of sight, out of mind from the local authority. Labour were running Lambeth at the time, but it was under a, this guy, Ted Knight, who was a militant Labour leader, and he was at war with the government. So he was fighting his fight down there and we were just sort of getting on with taking ownership of Bonington Square and Vauxhall Grove, tucked away. 
Without the permanent and imminent threat of eviction, Scotus started investing into the area to create a nice environment for the community. Todd remembers that spirit of freedom, which led to a lot of great initiatives on Burlington Square. It was quite sort of remarkable to have this bit of territory that we felt that we could pretty much, you know, we, we, we could, you know, we could, we could make a shop, we could make a cafe, we could make a nightclub, you know, it was, we just had to decide to do it and there was space to do it. And we, we, we created these community gardens and we planted trees in the street and we felt, you know, it was a bit, it was like sort of playing really in, in a way compared to, you know, grown-up life, as most people know. I asked Todd about the nightclub specifically, as I was intrigued. He told me that it was that one house on the square, number 37, that no one could really move into as it was damaged with no facilities. And so Todd and a few others decided to completely transform the place. It was a sort of party house, I suppose, really. Um, so the top floor was turned into a bar and, the, and then the bottom two floors were like a stage with a kind of balcony area. Alistair remembered very vividly how number 37 looked like. You know, if you can imagine a semi-derelict house that has been renovated and then kind of decorated and lit and, you know, to have a particular kind of ambience. And it's like a house party. In a, in a kind of, you know, a semi-derelict building. And I think the people who originally did that, they literally sawed some of the floor of the, the, the first floor, they sawed a hole in that ceiling to create a mezzanine from which you could kind of look down at whatever performance was going on. And what was the atmosphere like? Um, louche, I think is probably the word. Um you know, it was it was very relaxed, and it worked pretty well actually. Well, I think it worked really well. You know, it felt it seemed like something that everybody appreciated. Bands would be playing at the weekend, from classical to punk music, and theme nights would be organised. There were also screenings, exhibition, fundraising events. It was more of a cultural centre than a nightclub. Alistair says the square was pretty anarchic at the time. It was kind of anarchic at every level, you know, f from the way people lived their lives to how architectural space was treated to the kind of activities that were happening. At the opposite end of Burlington Square, in front of number 81, was a disused corner shop. And for one summer, it became the milk bar. My friend Lucy, who, who was living there, she was a pretty amazing cook and really good on cakes and things like that. And she had this idea to set up a, a, a little milk bar in the shop and I helped her to kind of convert it and we did it up in a sort of 50s style. And she'd go get up early in the morning and go to the market and get fruit and make cakes and go and get milk from the dairy and, and make milkshakes. And it was a very nice place to hang out during the summer. Later on, the corner shop became more of a food cooperative. Squatters would buy food in bulk and distribute it to the community at very low prices.
The community cafe was also created around that time in the early 80s. Jen, one of Todd's friends, was squatting a house at 11 Vauxhall Grove. He had found two big functional industrial cookers and installed them there. A group of squatters, led by a woman called Alison, fully decorated the place and transformed it into a cozy vegetarian cafe. Alison painted a picture specifically for the cafe, which became a real emblem for the community over the years. It was inspired from a Gainsborough painting and depicts an 18th century lady wearing a beautiful yellow dress, elegantly seated on the edge of a balcony, holding a crowbar with her right hand. That one tool that was used by the squatters to open up the bricked-up houses all around the square. Alistair, the now film teacher, cooked in the cafe at the time. I was definitely involved in the cafe and I'd cook there, you know, probably once a week for a couple of years. We used to cycle along to New Covent Garden Market, the um, wholesale fruit and veg market for the whole of London, and they would be throwing away huge quantities of food. And we would just cycle around with rucksacks on our back and and find the food. You know, you kind of like find, you know, av- anything from avocados to star fruit to melon to, you know, potatoes, God, God knows what. And then you would cook a three-course meal and sell it for a pound. There was a rotation of cooks throughout the week. The cafe helped the cooks make a little bit of money on the side and it also provided cheap food to the community. It also became a meeting point for people to discuss various community matters and was critical to set up the housing cooperatives. The cafe echoed the value of the community by sourcing food that would have been wasted and only cooking vegetarian meals. Despite the growing community of squatters populating the area, the square was still pretty dark and bleak. In 1984, squatters started to plant trees in the neighbourhood to make it a little more friendly to its inhabitants. James Fraser was one of the driving forces behind that movement. I I just saw the opportunity to start planting trees because it was obvious, it was so bleak. There were, I think, probably one or two trees in the whole square pretty sad-looking, you know, cherry trees. And we had this common aim to keep the, keep the houses, do them up, do this place up. You know, that was our, you know, thing that kept us all together and people had different skills. But I, I sort of took the, the sort of horticultural initiative because that's what I do. That's what I was trained to do in New Zealand here. And, you know, I just basically knew how to dig holes and that seemed like a great thing to do so we started you know virtually claiming the road claiming the pavements there were were a couple of bomb sites where houses had been bombed that were empty we started trying to plant them there and you know it was sort of you know pretty rudimentary that same year in 1984 James and the other squatters leading the initiatives managed to obtain environmental grants from the local council and they got the authorization to dig up the corner of the square. The council helped to provide all the materials, the trees, the soil, but the squatters had no equipment. It was so hard, you know, because they were just out there with spades, you know, we were just squatters. We weren't, we didn't have diggers or, you know, we had to dig these holes by hand. But the initiative progressed and the square started to look different as guerrilla planting spread plants, trees and flowers on Longley Lane 
Bunnington Square and Vauxhall Grove? I mean, we decided to take on that whole area because that was our that was our manor. You know, that was our domain, and we became very enthusiastic about it. And the, you know, the trees became a huge part of the area. The cafe, the cultural center, the milk bar, the guerrilla planting. All these initiatives happened around the same time, bonding squatters and local residents together. The square became a vibrant community from which emerged a lot of ideas that were far from mainstream in the 1980s. This is Alistair again. Bonington Square in many ways was ahead of its time and it's a classic example of the physical space being taken over by a group of independently minded and slightly rebellious and creative people and through the occupation of that physical space all sorts of ideas gestated and we would, were doing things like having art festivals having a policy of cooking in the cafe without wasting any food or kind of gorilla planting of you know flowers and trees around the square And these, of course, are things that have become very, you know, are really topical now. It's not even environmental. People realise now that it's actually crucial, it's essential. And I think to a certain extent, we were experimenting with some of those ideas, you know, back then. During the UK general election campaign of 1983, the Conservatives pledged to abolish six city councils, including the GLC, the Greater London Council, which they considered a wasteful and unnecessary tier of government. The GLC was led by Ken Livingstone, a rising figure of the Labour Party. He became a very strong opponent to Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives at the time. After she won the election, Abolishing the GLC was part of a strategy to reduce Labour's influence in London. Margaret Thatcher appointed Kenneth Baker as the local government minister, and the Conservatives campaigned very hard against the GLC. This is an extract from a debate at the House of Lords at the time. My Lords, I do not intend to dwell in this debate on the inanities of the spending by the GLC and and, uh, Livingston. Such... Wanton abuse of power is offensive to most ordinary, sensible people. Especially is it an affront to Londoners who pay rates. Perhaps the worst aspect of it all is the odium and the ridicule which these people have brought on the good name of local government as such. This is another speech from Kenneth Baker, who describes the policies led by Ken Livingstone at the GLC during the Conservative Conference in 1984. He sprayed money around the London Labour boroughs. His policy is if it's red and it moves, back it. (laughs) The pressure intensified and the Local Government Act was ultimately passed in 1985, abolishing the GLC. My Lords, there have voted content 209, not content 213. In the end, this turn of events favoured the squatters of Bunnington Square. This is James Fraser again. Uh, Margaret Thatcher abolished the GLC. You know that that was a big game changer because a lot of the properties had to be sold. 
GLC owned the houses on Burlington Square and Vauxhall Grove. The properties had originally been bought by the GLC for the Inner London Education Authority to make a playing field for the nearby school of Langley Lane. After residents were relocated, squatters gradually arrived and were not immediately evicted. In the end, the school plans did not materialize, and as the GLC was being abolished, all its properties had to be sold. The work to build housing cooperatives had started already and was accelerated with the abolishment of the GLC. Some members of the community didn't like the idea of being organized and dealing with the authorities, and they went their own way. Meanwhile, several housing co-ops were created. The Vine Housing Cooperative was one of them. It borrowed money from the government at very low interest to buy the houses and renovate them. The co-op had to follow government guidelines to provide cheap housing for the community and ensure there was no corruption. Cooperatives were very popular at the time, both on the conservative and on the labour end of the political spectrum. And it was a very natural next step for Bunnington Square. The other main cooperative created at the time was the Bunnington Square Cooperative. Its members decided to seek funds from private equity rather than public funds, which meant that they were less hamstrung by government guidelines. And years later, the members of the co-op ended up buying the properties, and the organization is not defunct, but it had 11 houses at the time. James is still a member of the Vine Housing Cooperative today. He recalls the process of forming the co-op and buying the properties. We're lucky in timing-wise because prior to the sort of housing boom in the 80s, we were able to buy them really cheaply. And the GLC or the Inner London Education Authority were pretty sympathetic to co-ops. They, they didn't seem to really want to just to squeeze. Obviously, they're ideologically on the same page. Selling these houses to a community of squatters was also seen as a small revenge for the GLC after the government enacted the abolition of the organisation. It took a few years, between 86 and 89, for the Vine Housing Co-op to gradually buy the houses on Burlington Square and Vauxhall Grove. Today, it has 22 properties and 70 members. We decided right early on to try and represent, uh, well, our members represent the ethnic makeup of Lambeth. So we took a few people off Lambeth waiting list to do that. We took a few refugees, of housing waiting lists and the members like me were mostly founder members you know squatters in other words there was a few conditions to become a member of the co-op first squatters had to be on the lambeth housing list then they had not to own a property within london attend monthly co-op meetings and join a subgroup with specific responsibilities those responsibilities included finance, maintenance, policy and public relations, housing management and membership. In exchange, members were provided with cheap housing in a very vibrant community. Squatting first and then accessing cheap rents via the co-op has been very liberating for many residents. James, for instance, was able to set up his nursery business in Batsy. Chantal, who squatted in the square in the 80s, could develop a chocolate brand, Rococo Chocolate, which became a huge success. She still lives in Bonington Square today and was able to buy her house. And many others, without the heavy weight of rent, were able to freely pursue their passions. Ruth is another one. She attended a sculpture course. Alistair, 
he helped publish Monochrome, an underground magazine edited in Brixton. And of course all the others, the musicians, filmmakers and artists who populated the square over the years. Makes you wonder sometimes, what would the world be like without having to pay a rent or a mortgage payment every month? My guess is, very different. Thanks for listening to City Rights on Bonington Square. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this episode. If you want to see some pictures of the places we talked about, please follow the link in the description. A big thanks to Robert Todd, James Fraser, Alistair Oldham and Ruth Morgan for sharing their stories with me. And thanks to Catchling Hastings who helped me put this show together. Our theme song is Highway 94 by Blue Dot Sessions. In the second part of this episode, we'll find out how Bonington Square evolved in the last 30 years. We'll speak to the Marin family, who joined the co-op as refugees from Colombia in 1989. The, the case was very internationally and nationally exposed, and, and then Amnesty, Amnesty International helped us to, to come to England. We'll speak to Claire, who ran very popular nights at the Bonington Café. My boyfriend made me a bicycle trailer, so I used to put that on the back of the bike and I'd cycle around the skips and the security guards would be trying to catch me and I'd see him walking along and I'd be very nonchalant, just continue putting stuff in my trailer right until the last minute, at which point I'd hop on the bike and cycle away and they couldn't catch me. <laughs> we'll also chat to one of the last quarters of Bonington Square, Yahil Wallach. It was a house that always you know, always attracted me, always looked like there's an interesting story behind it. So, of course, when I heard that it's being vacated and it will stand empty for a while, then it was uh, very exciting. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with more soon, but bye for now.